my encouragement to, to you is that you all become feeders feeders upon the Word of God, hungering for the Word of God, desiring to apply the Word of God, all for the glory of God. It's important that we know that successful Bible study is derived from three key questions. Number one, what does the Bible say? Number two, what does the Bible mean by what it says? And number three, how does it apply to my life? Basic, a basic outline for the study of Scripture. Each of those questions is indeed important, but applying the Word must always be the highest goal. Application of the divine truth of God. Knowledge without application is useless. Doctrine without duty is damaging. Not only to your Christian life, but to the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Both the Old and New Testaments emphasize the importance of applying Scripture. Joshua 1.8 says that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. James chapter 1, verse 22 is the New Testament equivalent to Joshua 1.8. And it's intended for every believer, for every true believer. And it says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Be doers of the word and not merely hearers. The phrase here, doer of the word, refers to one who consistently and characteristically obeys the word of God. Not one who periodically obeys but his, his or her life is characteristic of one who obeys daily. The principles and the divine truth of Almighty God is revealed through Scripture. One writer says that it is one thing to run in a race, it is something else to be a runner. It is one thing to teach a class, it's something else to be a teacher. Runners are known for running, teachers are known for teaching. It's characteristic of their lives, end quote. And in the same way, doers of the word are known for their obedience to biblical truth. Their obedience to biblical truth. An individual's claim to love Christ means something only if he obeys what he says. Many people say, I love Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus, but they're about as far away from obeying the truth as one could possibly be. Many unregenerate people that are not even the Lord's claim to love Jesus they don't even have the ability to obey. If you're truly saved, you have the ability to obey. Because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The residency of the living God within you. You are capable of obeying. There are four truths that explain the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. The purpose for which the internal testimony serves is fourfold. Number one, the first question we asked a moment ago, what does the Bible say? When one comes to the understanding of what it says, they say, I understand the statements of the gospel. I understand them. That they are clear. Number two, this is what it means. I understand the meaning of those statements as declared through Scripture. Number three, I agree that this is true. 
that these statements and these doctrines are of a divine nature. In other words, that they are the very words of the living God. Now, there are multitudes of people throughout history that agree or have agreed with those first three points and they are or will be in hell. There's a fourth statement that it is the result of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit that results in true belief. And that is to say that this is indeed true, I agree with that, I believe it all, that it is from God, and I'm entrusting myself completely to this truth by faith. It is here that saving faith is distinguished from a simple said faith. True saving faith in comparison to a verbal, empty, dead faith. I received an email earlier this morning. It's a quote from a professor of Old Testament at Master Seminary. It says, and I quote, It's not whether you can master the material, but whether the material will master you. Many people desire to master the material without being mastered by the material. Be it the doctrine or the theology, the divine truth of Almighty God is revealed through Scripture. And with that being said, I invite you to open to John chapter 7 as we will look together this morning at verses 14 to 24. We'll pick up where we left off last time. And I begin reading in verse 14. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and he said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who, who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. Let's pray. Our mighty Father, our heavenly King, we praise your holy name and we come together joined in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ. And we ask for your grace now, Holy Spirit, to guide us, to direct us, to enlighten our eyes, to open our ears, to soften our hearts, to receive your divine truth this morning so that your church would be edified, they'd be built up, to purge out the sin that hides itself in each one of us. And God, we pray also for the unregenerate this morning, those who are here that are unsaved, I pray that you this morning, by your grace, would grant them eternal life. 
the presence and the power of your spirit to know the truth so that the truth may set them free. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, chapters 7 and 8 take place over a one-week period of time. Seven or eight-day period makes up John chapter 7 and chapter 8. And it's divided up into three parts. The beginning, or just prior to the Feast of Tabernacles, as revealed in verses 1 through 10. The middle of the feast in verses 11 to 36. And then the last day of the feast, verses 37 to 52 as well as John chapter 8. Now, the response of these three phases can be distinguished by three words. Doubt, debate, and division. Doubt about Jesus, debate over Jesus, and as always, division because of Jesus. Jesus divides. He is divisive because of his bold, authoritative, and offensive teaching. Gospel's an offense. And there's three points of focus for us this morning regarding the teaching of Jesus Christ. We see the disposition, the doctrine, and the duty of Christ's teaching, as outlined in your bulletin. The disposition, the doctrine, and the duty of Christ's teaching. We're only going to make it through the doctrine. I'll give you a heads up right now because we are nowhere close to getting to point three last service. So, let's begin with the disposition. In other words, the nature or the character of his teaching. And the disposition of his teaching is that it is, it is on divine time and of divine wisdom. It is on divine time and of divine wisdom. Verses 14 and 15. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he taught. And the Jews marveled saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Now, as you recall, the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. And this is one of the three feasts in which all Jewish males within a 20-mile radius would have to descend, uh, ascend up to Jerusalem to celebrate these feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles was to commemorate the God's leading of Israel through the wilderness. So they would set up these sticks these booths or tabernacles, these sticks and these branches, and they would make little huts, and they would live in those huts for seven days, remembering God's deliverance from Egypt and how they wandered and how He provided for them as they wandered in the wilderness. The wind would blow through. They would have holes in the roof so that they could look up and see the star and the moon and so on. Now, when Jesus arrived, it had been four days since His unbelieving brothers had gone up to the feast. Jesus was living and operating on a divine timetable, a divine calendar. Never did he operate by chance. He never did a thing by chance. He was on the divine schedule of his Father, led by the Spirit. You had the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, leading the second person of the Godhead, Jesus Christ, according to the will of the first person of the Godhead, God the Father. Jesus told his brothers that he was under special constraint that everything he does is of total significance to them who are unbelievers he said you can go anytime you want you're not on the divine timetable you go your time is any time but not mine the agenda of Jesus was regulated by the father and up until now his time to arrive at that feast was not yet so the absence of Jesus 
during the first half of the feast aroused the curiosity of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders of the day. They were on the lookout for him. They knew he was going to arrive. They knew he had to arise. They wanted to know when and where. So they continued to ask, where is that man? Where is he? So when the time was right, Jesus makes his move. On the fourth day of the feast, he enters in. Now, the public opinion of people was divided. They whispered among themselves, you know, and for fear of the Jewish leaders, they didn't want to be heard. Some thought that he was good. They said that he was good, while others accused him of being a deceiver. The name of Jesus always draws attention. There's going to be reaction. Either going to bow in humble submission to his lordship, or you're going to try to eliminate him from your life and the most dangerous place I believe to be is to be indifferent. Je the Doobie Brother mentality. Jesus is just alright with me. Jesus is just alright. You can get by. Yeah, I agree with all that, but I'm not going to bow my life before Him. It's a very dangerous place to be. But Jesus remained in seclusion till the feast was half completed and then suddenly He appeared in the courts of the temple. And as you remember... In John chapter 6, the climax of his popular ministry had ended. In John 6, verse 66, when those quote-unquote disciples went out from among him and they followed him no more. They were revealed as false disciples. They appeared to be disciples, they were no disciples at all. Now it was custom for the rabbis who taught in the temple that they would take their place at these differing pillars throughout the temple they would come in and a rabbi would go to, a, to one of these pillars he would sit down and when he would sit he was basically saying that he's getting ready to teach so people would quiet themselves and they would listen you remember in, in Matthew chapter 4 the fame of Jesus went out throughout all the land he was healing all kinds of sicknesses, all kinds of diseases, casting out demons. And then he went up on a mountain, by him, alone with his disciples. He withdrew from the crowds. He sat down and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. He goes on to give the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. But notice he sat down when he taught. That's what rabbis did. When Jesus takes a pillar, he begins to proclaim divine truth. Here's the very word of God proclaiming the truth of God. And notice what they did. Their response, they marveled. Saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? The straightforward manner of Jesus' teaching here caused them to go, how on earth can he and does he do this? This is beyond comprehension. His learning astonished them. Primarily his command of the Old Testament. He was expounding and explaining the living words of Scripture, which would have been to explain the old, what we know as the Old Testament. And even his critics here admitted that his, his extensive learning and, and expertise were beyond what they'd ever seen. Now, Jewish rabbis or scribes would teach, and as they would teach, they wouldn't speak for long without citing some authoritative source. They would say, the sages say, or the Talmud teaches, or the Mishnah explains, and so on, and then they would go on and would quote some authoritative figure 
in explaining the living text, but not Jesus. Jesus never quoted any authority. As a matter of fact, Jesus kept saying, I say to you, I tell you the truth. Now, it was very noticeable that Jesus felt no sense of inferiority to these university-trained professors whatsoever. They were riveted by what he said. They were trying to figure out how he could have possibly attained this knowledge without engaging in formal rabbinical studies. And they recognized his teachings to be greater than those who were educated there. But at the same time, they saw Jesus as a, an ordinary Galilean carpenter. They were amazed. There's no human explanation for this. If you recall in Matthew chapter 7, the ending of the Sermon on the Mount, and says, it says, verse 28, And so it was when Jesus had ended the sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now about a year later, after this incident here at the Feast of Tabernacles, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples, would also bewilder the religious authorities of the day. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And they realized that they what? Had been with Jesus. You want to cause people to marvel? At your heavenly godly wisdom? Spend time with Jesus. But to spend time with Jesus is to spend time in His Word because the, psalm, the psalmists tell us that He has exalted His Word to that of His own name. It's to be in His Word and get His Word into you. And God will provide divine opportunity for you to declare His truth defend his truth or challenge others with the truth and they'll stand amazed well it's not you it's not me it's his truth in us and then through us spend time with Jesus but unfortunately it was only their curiosity that was aroused here and not their conscience not their conscience when the claims and teaching of Jesus become merely an academic exercise beware I tell the men that on the Thursday night theology class almost weekly. If this is an exercise for you to simply grow in knowledge and that is it, beware. Knowledge puffs up, love edifies. So they were more concerned here about his, de his degrees than they were his message. You're more taken by his delivery than the content of what he was saying. You know, a lot of people go and they sit and they critique pastors on how they communicate rather than what they're communicating don't do that you better be all be here and I better be here to hear what he has to say through his living active word amen come on somebody so the purpose of studying theology and doctrine is to fulfill the great commission all power and authority, Jesus said, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's one reason. It's also to correct wrong ideas. There's all kinds of wrong ideas today, amen? Just listen to a lot of your friends who proclaim to be Christians. Listen to their twisted theology and their messed up doctrine. 
We want to correct wrong ideas in love. We want to handle, be able to handle doctrinal controversy. It's very important. Remember, Satan masquerades as an angel of what? Light. He brings an element of truth and then he twists it. And above all, the study of theology and doctrine is to grow closer to God. To grow in humility. To grow in holiness. So their question of authority here motivates the Lord's comment in the next verse. So first we see that the, 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 the disposition or the nature of his teaching was that it was timely and authoritative. It was timely and authoritative. And that leads to point number two, the doctrine. Verses 16 to 18. Verse 16. Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, Jesus clarifies here the source of his learning by referring them to him who sent me. Him who sent me. They never heard this. We know that Jesus made many claims of deity, claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed equality with the Father. That's why they wanted to kill him. To claim equality with the Father was declared to be God in the flesh. You know, they would have expected him to respond, well, I'm self-studied. You know, I studied at home. I looked at the list of everything they teach in your universities, and I went and got the books, and I read them, and I studied them, and here I am. That's what they expected. He said, my doctrine is not mine, it's his. It's his. Nor did Jesus claim to be the originator of his message. In other words, his message is not derived from some earthly source. It was heavenly. Heavenly. And he assures them that the origin of his message is divine. So, his identity with the Father gives him access to the knowledge of the Father. Jesus said, I and my Father are what? One. All that you see in me, the Father is. All that you want to know about the Father, look at me. For we are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. To reject the words of Christ is to reject the words of the Father. How many people claim to know God and they reject the authoritative, narrow way of Jesus Christ but claim to know God? Second John tells us clearly, if you reject the teachings and the doctrines of Christ, you don't have the Father either. Second John 9. You can claim what you want. The world can claim what they want about knowing God. They don't know Him. They reject Christ, you reject the Father. Jesus said in John 5, 23, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. In John uh, chapter 8, beginning at verse 26, Jesus said, He who sent me is true, and I declare to the world that I have heard from Him. In verse 28, I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Now, Jesus in his divinity needed to be taught nothing because he's God in the flesh. But in his humanity, if you recall, back in Luke chapter 2, remember that when Jesus and his family, as all other Jews did, they would go in for Passover. They would celebrate, or any feast for that matter, of the three I mentioned. And when Mary and Joseph and the family left, they left Jesus behind, unaware. They traveled a day and they go, ay, ay, ay. 
where's Jesus? And they assumed that he was with the entourage somewhere. They looked around for him in camp. They realized he is not here. We left him behind. They go back to Jerusalem. They look all over the place. They get to the temple and there he is sitting amongst these types, the theologians. And they marveled then at his understanding. He says, did you not know that your father and I were worried about you? And Jesus replied, did you not know I must be about my father's business? But then he submitted himself to them and he went with them. And the Bible says in Luke chapter 2 that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. He grew up physically. He grew naturally. He grew with a knowledge in his humanity, although he was always divine. He was always God. In John 8.38, I speak of what I have seen with my Father. In John 14.24, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. You say you love Jesus, do you keep his words? Jesus said, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. If you don't keep my words, you don't love me. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Back in John 12, verse 49, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So his message was not something to be learned only by those who are experts in theology. It is for anyone whose whole motivation and desire is set in the direction of God. And this, of course, involves faith, doesn't it? It involves faith. Unlike those back in chapter 6. If you recall the mob in chapter 6, the mass groups of people that were following Jesus around after he fed them, he fed the 5,000, multiplying bread and fish, they followed him across Galilee, and Jesus pointed out the fact, let me tell you why you're following me. You're following me because you got your gut filled up yesterday, and you're back for more. That is it. You don't trust me. You don't love me. You're here for my hand, and not my person. John 6, 28, they wanted to know how to do the power of God. They wanted to know how to do that which Christ did. And they, the mob, said to him, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He sent. It's belief. It's trust. Not to believe about, but to believe in. To entrust oneself to the Lordship of Christ. And all that Jesus says and does is the standard for what is genuine, what is true, and what is altogether right. He's the standard. He's the authority. Jesus goes on to affirm now that any truly sincere person would know where his message originated. If you're truly seeking after me, you truly want to know me, you will come to find out, guaranteed, where my message comes from. But how? How is that possible? Well, Jesus proceeds to offer the means for testing the validity, of, the validity of his message here in verse 17. If, this is how, if anyone wills to do his will, he shall what? Know. Concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. This is a practice test. This is a pragmatic evaluation that reveals divine truth. Jesus guarantees it. 
Let me show you a practical, applicable way to know whether or not my truth is divine. Subjectively. Keyword subjectively. Not objectively. The truth is the truth. This is the Word of God, no matter what anyone thinks or experiences. But he's saying, you want to subjectively test me out? You want to experience whether or not my words are the words of the Father? I'm going to tell you how to do it. You must will to do His will. And then you will know. Then you will know. So, any questions as to the claims of Christ, they're not going to be decided through some meticulous academic debate alone. Okay, there's, there's men who've written great books on theology, dead on, correct, that are in hell. They had the facts straight. They had the history right. They had the theology right on. The doctrine, perfect, as far as we can determine in our finite minds. But they were unregenerate. They never entrusted themselves to that truth. Because many who wrote great things, they quote-unquote walked away from the faith. And if you can walk away, you never what? You never were. They went out from us because they were never of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. They went out from us, proving that they were never of us. 1 John 2, 19. So it's no, not some academic debate. Here there's a moral aspect involved that Jesus is talking about. The way to test the validity of Christ's teaching and the claims contained within it is this. Obedience to it. It's obedience to His words. So only by coming and hearing and listening and then doing His will as revealed can one know for sure, subjectively speaking, that it's true. To experience the reality of the proclaimed truth is to do it. It's to obey. Now, Jesus has already made it clear back in chapter 6, verse 44, that free human commitment to his claims is impossible. Look at verse 44, chapter 6. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up the last day. He's saying, there is no sinner in and of themselves that is able to come to Christ without the drawing of the Father. In verse 37, chapter 6, he says, all, verse uh, 37, all that the Father gives me will come. That's the universal positive of the gospel. The, the universal positive of the gospel is John 6:37. The universal negative is John 6:44. No one isn't able. They're not able. Why? Because of their sin nature. God draws them and changes that nature. It takes a supernatural act of God. Jesus is saying to these people, teachers and common people alike. If you will to do His will, you shall know concerning the doctrine. So if you will to do His will, you're here desiring it for something other, other than what you've brought to the table. It's the divine work of God operating within you. And if you will to do His will, you shall know, or you, in other words, you will find out if it's from God. So this is the only way that, to know that you have divine saving faith. You know, many people struggle with, uh, they profess Christ, but they struggle, I, I, I don't have assurance. If someone's truly saved and they don't have assurance, unless they have quirky ideas about the promises of God they need to be straightened out on, you can typically follow the pattern and go back to their life, which is a life of disobedience. 
with a life of disobedience and unrepentant sin and unconfessed sin, there, lack of a, a great doubt will arise in your mind, like King David, when he fell into sin. And he had sex with Bathsheba, who was not his wife, and he got her pregnant. And then he orchestrated the murder of her husband for in fear of finding out that it was him. He went an entire year without repenting of that sin, and Nathan the prophet came to him and told him a parable. He says, you know, a rich man came into town, he had many flocks of his own, but you know, when it came time to lay down and sacrifice and have a feast and all, he took one little ewe lamb of someone else. David said, who's the man? And I'll have him killed. And what did Nathan say? You're the man. Thus says the Lord. <laughs> and David repented in brokenness. God did not remove the consequences of his sin. And as you know, David went on to pen Psalm 37 regarding that place of uh, unrepentance and everything he suffered internally and physically and mentally and emotionally. And he's penned Psalm 51. And in Psalm 51, he said, Lord, restore unto me the what? The joy of my salvation. The assurance of my salvation. Not my salvation. If someone has salvation, you can't lose it. It's just that a lot of people they have, that think they have it don't. They don't obey because they can't. They don't desire to obey because they don't have the Spirit indwelling them. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you want to know if He's real? You want to know if His claims are real? You will to do His will and you will know for sure. You will know. If you want to have a victorious life, those of you who are in Christ... You will to do His will, and you will know. You will grow in knowledge. You will grow in the ability to communicate divine truth to the lost and encourage brothers and sisters in the faith. What a joy that is. People think you're brilliant. It's just that you hold brilliance within you. It's the truth, the divine truth of God. Amen? The divine truth of God. But... The heart that is still corrupt, there's no value in obtaining God's divine truth. People who see no value in desiring, wanting, or pursuing divine truth, they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Regardless of what they say, says the Bible. So if anyone wills to do his will, means that in terms of human responsibility, there must be a definite act of settled and determined purpose to carry it out. And if there's a set and settled, determined purpose to carry it out, it shows you and it reveals the fact that it's God working in you and through you. Have you ever wondered about the teachings of Christ? You have trouble understanding certain aspects of his teaching. You have difficulty uh, claiming the promises of God. If you do, he gives you the answer. How to understand it. His answer is obey it. Practice it. It's very simple. This is not some abstract form of thinking here. This is very, very objective. Obey. It's that simple. And you will be assured, you will know that this doctrine, this teaching is of God. And if you're a believer, and you've refused, and you're being convicted today, there's one step, one word. You know what it is? Repent. 
Repent. Begin to apply the truths of Scripture to your life. All that you know to be true, apply it. Do it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But see, some people that aren't saved, they can't work out what hasn't been worked in. You can only work out what God has worked in. If God's worked salvation into you and saved you, it is now up to you to work it out, to apply it. You will have victory. It'll be touchdown. Let's put it into practice. You know, there's those who claim to be Christians, and perhaps they are, but they never seem to grow. Do you know people like that? Hopefully you're not one. I know people who have claimed to be Christians for decades, and they know very little scripture. And they're always beating their head against the same wall of discouragement and doubt. And then there's those who also claim to be Christian for decades, who know a wealth of scripture upstairs here. But they also beat their head against the same wall of discouragement, doubt, and defeat. They never overcome these certain problems. These pl problems that plague them time and time again. Be they relational problems, fear, maybe they're gripped by fear, anxiety, perhaps they have bitterness within them, unforgiveness within them. Until I pursue forgiving the one that I need to forgive, I'm going to have resentment and bitterness within me. It's going to affect my walk. If I'm gripped by fear, if I'm gripped by anxiety, I must go to the scripture that says, be anxious for what? Nothing. But in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, don't forget that, make your requests be made known to God, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's the result of application. Peace. And anxiety will go away, and then you don't have to go off to some wacko guy who's going to give you anxiety pills Right? So, oh, because you have a serotonin problem. Everyone has, seems to have a lack of serotonin these days. They never run any tests on these people. They just listen. Oh, do you think you have that? Yes, I do. Here you go. Go to the drugstore. Come on, somebody. Whether they know a lot, whether they know a little, both groups have faith that is either superficial or shallow. And they seem to be disengaged from all that God has promised through His living, active Word. So, spiritual understanding, spiritual knowledge and maturity is, is not formed by simply learning facts or the systems of theology. You can learn all the systematic theology there is, and you're never going to come to a rich understanding and knowledge without applying those truths to your daily life. Impossible. That depends on knowing by way of obedience. Submitting oneself to the truth of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. You know, I read a story this week about an old retired Marine general. Hoorah, that's right. He was very disciplined. He was a strong man, a tough man, a brash man, very self-sufficient. And he was very accustomed to giving orders and having them carried out. Guess when? Immediately. After he retired, by God's glorious grace, he was born again of the Spirit of God. And his rapid growth was amazing to everyone who knew him. They were blown away. Everyone who knew him witnessed this great transformation. 
In his conversion, they saw compassion, understanding, and a new development of patience that he never had before. He became affectionate, gracious toward old, bitter enemies. He's an old leatherneck boy, let me tell you. He became soft, meek. An old comrade recognized these changes, and he approached one of the general's closest Christian friends. And he asked, what happened in his life? Well, obviously he replied, he came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He said, but let me tell you the reason. When the general reads something in the scriptures, he obeys it, guess when? Immediately. That's why he grew so fast. That's why his maturity was like from a launching pad from the moment he was converted. Because he willed to do the will of God as revealed through Scripture. Therefore, he knew that the doctrine was from God. What it was and what it said and what it meant by what it said. So the principle here is that honest obedience to God's will is the only way to, to obtain spiritual knowledge, growth, maturity, as well as this, again, the assurance of your salvation. Assurance. This is a resolution to do God's will. And it produces the security of being correct of knowing that you know that you know that you know what this means by what it says. And what a joy that is. And he shall know concerning the doctrine. So then, by coming with such an attitude, Jesus affirms that they will discover that this teaching is indeed the very truth of God. Remember the context. They were doubting his messiahship. They were doubting his authority. That's the immediate context. Everything I just covered is the principle of truth for the sake of application to your life and to my life. simply that Jesus is who he claims to be back in John 7 here if truth is met with unbelief the problem is within the unbelieving heart not with the truth so if someone says okay I'm going to apply these things I'm going to do these things because I'm going to put Jesus to this, the test okay this preacher said if I exercise these things I'll come to know whether or not Jesus is the real deal well if you go and pursue these things and you end up in the end going well it didn't work for me well guess who's wrong you are. How many people here? Well, I tried Christianity. I gave up on it. it. Didn't it didn't work out for me? Well, guess what? You're dead in your trespasses and sins, bud. Because on Judgment Day, you will not stand before Jesus Christ and says, "I put you to the test," as you've told those Pharisees back in John seven. And you know what? My life never panned out. You know what he's going to say? Guilty. Guilty. To put God to the test here, put the Lord to a test. This is a subjective test. Because if you come wholeheartedly willing to do what he says, the guarantee is that you will succeed. You will have victory. That's the guarantee. You will come to know, first of all, that Jesus is the Christ. That's the primary, the primary context here. If you don't know Christ, and you want to put test Christ to the test, to see if he is who he says he is, that he's the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father except through him, that if you believe that there's any other way besides Jesus Christ, you don't have Christ. That's what he said. So if you have doubts about Jesus being Messiah, brother, friends, friends, friends. I made this with a smile. Put him to the test. But you must diligently pursue and willing, be willing to apply the truth by submitting to him. Jesus said in John 8.45, But because I tell the truth, you do not believe. I tell you the truth, you just simply don't believe. You know, most people come to Jesus with reservations. 
And the bottom line is that they're just simply unwilling to commit to everything he requires. Jesus spoke about this. By the way, when I speak, my friends, if you're a visitor here today, I love you with the love of Christ. I'm passionate about the truth. I may see ang- seem angry. I'm not angry. Someone visited last week and they left a card that says, I seem spiteful, self-righteous, and full of pride. But they're mistaking that with authoritative teaching. When you study the Word of God and you know what this means and you know that the authority is Jesus Christ, you don't pitter-patter around, man. You bring it. You bring it. So I say that with love. In Luke... There was all kinds of people that were outwardly committed and interested in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus goes on to set the bar of discipleship as high as possible here. And in verse 25, says this, Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. In other words, if anything competes for the lordship of Jesus Christ in one's life, you have no part with him. If a family member mocking you, ridiculing you for being a follower of Jesus Christ, you have no part with him. You cannot be his disciple. Verse 27, And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, look at this, intending... There's an intention here. What's the intention? It's to build a tower. Jesus uses a very familiar application here. In this parable we see that Jesus says, Look, if you're going to sit down and reckon whether or not you can afford to follow me, you better take into account this. If you're intending to build a tower, whoever, and does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he is enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him. How many people have made some emotional response to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they simply disappear? And they go on and they, they, they rejoice or they, they boast in having found Christ, when in reality they found nothing. Because they fade away. They never were. And that gives reason for people to mock, oh, there's another Christian again, right? And they say, this man began to build a tower and was not able to finish. You know, there was a building downtown that was on F and Broadway, I think it was, for years that they dug out a large pit out of the ground for an underground parking place. And they erected all the steel concrete and it sat there I don't know if they ran out of money or what and it rotted away it just rusted all of those all of the rebar sticking up and all the caged rebar for concrete to be poured around it rusted they obviously didn't have enough they didn't count the cost when they began to lay the foundation so they destroyed it and they built something else there but it sat there for years I always thought about this passage when I drove by F and Broadway Or, verse 31, what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? If it's 10,000 of mine against 20,000 of yours, you better sit down and count the cost. You better determine whether or not you are able to defeat the 20,000. And if you're not, you'll be a fool to go to war. Right? Or else... 
While the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, Jesus said, take heed to those two illustrations, he says. Likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. If you want to come to Christ with baggage of your worldview that is contrary to his word, you don't have Christ because that's the broad road. Jesus said, straight is the way and narrow is the gate that leads to eternal life. How many go that way? Very few. Lord, are there just a few who are saved? Most assuredly, I say to you, you must strive to enter in because many seek, but very few find. Everyone wants a part of Jesus. Everyone wants a part of religion. But they're on the broad road because they want to bring their own ideas along with them. Well, I say God is like this. Well, I don't believe Jesus would ever do this. Well, what you believe is contrary to Scripture. So guess who's wrong? Not Jesus. Not Jesus. They're unwilling to pick up their cross daily to follow him. In Luke 9.23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If you're in Christ, you know that your thinking is going to be challenged on a day-to-day -day basis. As you wash your mind in the Word, oh man, the illuminating living Word of God is going to point out errors in your thinking, in your philosophy, even in your Christianity. As you come to a greater knowledge and understanding of the divine author, and as you obey and will to do His will, you come to a greater understanding and you begin to see where you were wrong in certain areas. What do you do? You simply repent of it and you move on and now you grow. You know what that's called? Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. He just dumps His grace on you. He covered you with His grace to save you. He's not going to keep you in that condition. He's not going to allow you to stay and remain where you are. He wants you to grow in the grace and knowledge of what? Jesus Christ. And He's going to grace you along the way. He graces you with the ability to obey. You have the Holy Spirit within you, so He's enabled you to obey what He's commanded. So will to do His will. Because your will has been transformed. If you don't will to do His will, your will hasn't been transformed. You have an old nature, which is sin nature. You're separated from God still. He's at enmity with you. You must repent. You must believe. You must bow. You must commit yourself to Him. These people, back in John 7, at the temple, is He taught? They do not desire to do His will. They may be seeking Him out, they're showing interest, but they never commit. Six months from this time in John 7, they will cry out what? Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Give us Barabbas. The murderer and the deceiver, kill Him. See, when you come to knowledge of Christ, when Jesus Christ comes into one's life and you become to grow with knowledge of Him, there's two responses. You either bow in humble submission or you attempt to eliminate Him from your thinking. It was true then, and it's true today, and that will always be the case, right? So a true desire to know Christ is the product of being drawn by Him. Even though you may have questions, even though you may have doubts or misunderstandings, to come and to see and to hear and to do what He declares will produce that understanding in due time. But I can't forgive Him. Yes, you can. I can't stand Him. Yes, you can. I can't stay married to her. Yes, you can. I can never forget what he did. Perhaps not, but you can forgive him for what he did. 
I'm gripped with fear to go out in public. You can do it. I'm full of doubt. You can grow in confidence. It's guaranteed for those in Christ. So when a person is prepared to walk and act according to God's word, fresh knowledge will be granted to you. You want fresh knowledge? I want fresh knowledge, man. I love the knowledge of God. I love being able to communicate the truth of God. And I even like getting cut up and torn down. Convicted. I do. I do. If you want to grow in Christ to become more like Christ, He's infinite. You and I, we're finite. You're going to get cut up and torn up. Amen? But never torn down. To where you can. Acts 5 verse 32 we are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. There we see the connection between the resident power of the Holy Spirit and the ability to obey. You get that? We are witnesses to these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey. You can obey because you have the Spirit. You have the Spirit and you're able to obey because you're in Christ. You know, Jesus said to Martha... Martha, Martha, she was all worried, right? She was concerned about her brother Lazarus. He died. Jesus raised him from the dead. In John eleven forty, he says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You want to see the glory of God? You want to see the majestic power of Almighty God? Will to do His will and you will know. You will know. Psalm 119, verse 2. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him with what? Their whole heart. It's not like, yeah, I've got my life, I've got my job, I've got my family. You know what? i got me a little bit of Jesus right over here in the corner. Not too much, man, because he tramples on everything. He wants everything. He wants every room of the house. He wants every, all of my mind. He wants all of my emotional control. He wants everything. I'm just going to keep him here because it's safe there. No. If you're in Christ, he's going to invade every room of your house. Right? This is your house. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. He's going to invade it because He is the resident power of that temple. And that's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 4, I pray that you will be strengthened in the inner man so that Christ can settle down and be at home. Power. Power. Psalm 25, 14, The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear Him and He makes known to them His covenant. He grants you knowledge. He gives you greater assurance, greater confidence in the truth that He's declared, you see? You'll be able to minister to one another confidently based on the author authoritative truth of Christ. You know, Christ is here. He's crying out in the streets. He's, he's in Galilee. He cried out there. He's in Jerusalem now and He's crying out. This time He's in the temple. Jesus is the very essence of all wisdom, isn't he? And the words of wisdom are always characterized by Christ. Now we had Aaron open up with Proverbs 1. Turn there for a moment if you will. Let's just look at a couple things here. Wisdom is crying out in the street. Verse 20, wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. Look at verse 22. How long, you simple ones, will you love simplicity? How often do we become simple? become simpletons sometimes. For scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. Verse 24, Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand 
and no one regarded. You know, a lot of people, oh yeah, I got a little bit of Jesus, and then the wheels fall off the wagon of their life, right? What do they do? They cry out to Jesus, right? They cry out. Because, you know, they have that, what 1 Corinthians refers to as a sorrow, but it's a worldly sorrow. The consequences of their sin have caught up. And they're sorry, all right, but it's not a godly sorrow which leads to repentance. When we're sorry over the fact that we've sinned against God, we repent. And anything other than that is referred to as a worldly sorrow. We're sorry for the consequences, right? Well, verse 28 says, Then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Who's me? Wisdom. Where does wisdom come from ultimately? God. Verse 29, Because they hated knowledge and they did not choose to fear the Lord. What's the promise? No, he, he concludes here in verse 33, But whoever listens to me, wisdom that is, will dwell safely and will be secure without fear of evil. Without the fear of being consumed by evil. What a promise. So, Jesus came here with a divine mission, a divine message. No one ever made such claims as this, ever. You make claims like this, you're either a lunatic, have some Messiah complex, or you proclaim these truths, do miracles like He did, and you prove that you're Messiah. Amen? That's why He did sign miracles. A sign points to something greater than itself. The sign miracles he did of healings and, and casting out demons and raising the dead was signs that pointed to something greater. It was his messiahship, the fact that he was God in human flesh. For anyone else to do so would be blasphemous, foolish. You'd be a lunatic to make the claims that Christ made about being Messiah. So he spoke of confidence here of being commissioned by the Father but not by some mere self-affirmation. Look at verse 18. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Now, every false messiah throughout history, every false teacher makes claims or attempts to teach for two simple reasons. You want to know who false teachers are? You just follow them. You look for these two things. False messiahs throughout time, there's two reasons in which they do it. It's fame and fortune. Fame and fortune. They're ego-driven, money-hungry hirelings that want to fleece the flock. No pastor should be at the pulpit to make friends. Right? Now, friendships develop, amen? Friendships develop through the body. The, the, the preacher's job is, is to... to to have the Word of God elevated above us, the people, and the Word of God comes down to the people because He's the authority, He's holy, and He's righteous. You know, these guys who set up their little stands and stand on the floor and conversate, you're in the wrong role, buddy. You're in the wrong role. Well, that's offensive. That's right. The Word offends, amen? But it also builds up. It edifies. But false teachers, false messiahs, they seek their own glory. They teach a self-help gospel. Jesus seeks only the honor of the Father who sent him. For he's a man of truth about whom there is nothing false. Nothing false. So there's a test by which we're able to determine whether a preacher has been called of God or whether he's gone out having never been called. I mean, Jesus said, He who speaks for himself seeks his own glory. Does the man magnify himself? 
or does he magnify Jesus Christ? Does he seek his own glory or does he seek the glory of God? Is his desire to serve one of financial gain? Is he in it for the loot? Is, is he in it just simply for a career to make money and be stable financially? Or does he speak about Christ and Christ alone, wanting to build up the flock? Can he truthfully say with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Another sign of a false teacher, he te talks about himself constantly. So if the general flow of a man's ministry is, Behold me. Me. A lot of talk about himself. Consumes the bulk of his message. There's a minimal effort and time to study expounding God's word. Beware. Red flag should go up. Why? Because you have the knowledge to know. You have the knowledge to know. We're supposed to be able to discern false teachers, false prophets if we will to do his will. Or he perhaps will say, Behold! The church. It's not about the church. There's a lot of talk about programs, campaigns. He refers to the church as a structure rather than the body of Jesus Christ, the head of which is Jesus himself. Red flag should go up. Or is the focus of his preaching, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's the focus. That's the purpose. Jesus is the head of the church, not some pope, not some pastor, not some supposed prophet. The question is, is the word of God given supreme precedence leading to the unadulterated worship of Jesus Christ? If not, red flag should go up. There's a warning in 1 Peter 4. Look, if anyone's going to speak... Verse 11, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be long the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And together, all we all say, Amen. Amen. If you're going to speak, speak the words of God. That's what Jesus was doing. That's the whole point. He was declaring the truth of the Father as the Son. The glory belongs to him and him alone. It's not to be shared with any man. 1 Thessalonians 2.6, Paul says, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. These were the, he was the apostle of Jesus Christ. He put no demands on anyone. For himself. For self-gain. Paul never used his greatly honored position to seek personal glory. You know, there's a dangerous trend in every cult. You can tell because they'll magnify their founder. As to their importance, as to their office, every false religious system can be identified by claiming additional revelation to the Word of God. They've got the Bible and this. They've got the Bible and a word of this, right? No. This is the authority. Whether it's some pope speaking ex cathedra, meaning from the chair. You know that the Roman Catholic Church actually teaches that when the pope speaks ex cathedra, he is speaking in the infallible words of God. And that they apply to me and every other pastor for that matter, or any other theologian, never to be refuted. 
or some weird cult it can be identified by the way its founder is idolized and exalted. Joseph Smith, Brigham Young of Mormonism. Mary Baker, Eddie Patterson, Glover Fry. We had a problem saying Mary. The Christian Science Movement. Charles Russ- Russell and Judge Rutherford of the Jehovah's Witness Movement. False teachers, false prophets that had a word in addition to the will and the word of Almighty God. Red flags should go up. We're not all Christians, right? With all these different religious sects and cults. No, we're not all under the same Lordship of Christ. There's truth. He who wills to do my will will know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from the Father or not. You will know. These type of false leaders, these type of false messiahs, these type of false teachers, they desire to share in the glory that is due to God alone. And that was the problem with the Jews of this day, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. When Pilate, when, when they delivered Jesus to Pilate, remember what Pilate said? Or the scripture says regarding Pilate, Matthew 27, 18. For he knew that it was, it was out of envy that they delivered him up. Because of envy. They had an outward, phony, hypocritical, religious desire that was not within the heart. Jesus points out their motives, which we don't have time to get to today. We'll get to it next time. But my question for you today is, are you willing to do God's will as far as you know it? With what you know, are you willing to do God's will? If you're here testing the claims of Jesus Christ, whatever you determine in the end, if it's other than Jesus Christ is Lord, He's the way, the truth, and the life, and there's no other way, you will be wrong. But He gives you a subjective test. If you will to do His will and apply the truths of that which He's commanded, you will come to determine subjectively, experientially, that He is who He claimed to be. That's the primary context of our text today. The principle for us that are in Christ, if you will to do His will, you will know and you will grow because He will grace you with grace upon grace upon grace of knowledge. Come to a deeper, richer understanding. And you'll be rooted in that truth and you'll be assured of that truth. Is Jesus for real? Yep, He's for real. Is His person, His power and His promises for real? They're for real. Put Him to the test if you don't believe it today. Walk out of here today. Put Him to the test. Obey what He's willed for you to obey. You don't have to enter a seminary or a Bible institute, take a course in Christian apologetics or theology in order to obtain assurance that the Bible's inspired. Why? Because of the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. If you're here today and you're not a true born-again believer in Jesus Christ, the only way you can believe is by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And I urge you to call out for Christ's mercy today. Beg of Him that He'll open your eyes to see, give you ears to hear, and an understanding so that you can bow in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then you will know. And then you will have an assurance that you are a sinner saved by grace. Call on Him today. I trust the Holy Spirit is working in your life to have you here at this day, at this hour, 
on his divine timetable to bring you to a true repentant place of understanding and I pray that he'll birth life into you today so spiritual understanding does not come by way of intellect alone but rather through the heart it's where it's obtained not by calculation not by analysis but by the exercise of faith Hebrews 11 verse 3 it says through faith we believers what? understand we understand faith is a gift faith is a gift if you don't know Christ cry out that he'll grant you faith that saves today so faith comes not by schooling but by hearing and hearing the word of God and you've heard the word of God today I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in you to bring you to saving faith and for you the church those saved me saved sinner saved by grace that you'll be edified to desire today to do the will of him to do his will and you will know you'll know more rich truth and again that wonderful message that was given to me this morning from the Old Testament professor at Master Seminary it's not whether you can master the material but whether the material will master you so my encouragement brothers and sisters in Christ is to allow the material to master you be so filled with the word that when temptations come when trials come when discouragement comes when the same doubts and the same battles and the same struggles face you you know the word and you know what to apply to that situation and you'll know that there's no temptation overtaking you except such as common to every man and what does he do he always leaves the way of escape doesn't he and then you will know that he's faithful and when you're faced with it again, you entrust yourself to Him by faith, and you'll grow in faith, rooted. And His name will be glorified through your life. Amen? Amen. Let's stand let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are forever humbled by the authority of Your Word. We're forever thankful for the gift of your Son, our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we're granted this knowledge and thankfulness because of the indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit. So there again we see you, the triune God, at work in and through our lives. And we praise you, Holy Father, mighty Son, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I pray for your church today, my brothers and sisters here today, that they would walk out this week with a deeper, richer hunger, desire to do your will. To be in your word, to not only know what it means by what it says, but to apply it, to give themselves, ourselves, Lord, to the material, the truth, that your word will master us. And Lord, for anyone here this morning who walked in, still dead in trespasses and sins. I pray that you cause them to be born again. Holy Spirit, we pray that you'll do a work in their very soul at this very moment. Birth in them everlasting life, we pray. And I pray that we would be able to share in the glory of your majestic name and in the testimony of the saving faith you've imparted to them as we begin to see the fruit of your resident power and your life in them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If
God is working in your life today, you better be working in all our lives, amen? But if He's brought you to saving faith this morning, you have any questions, you can come see me. We'll, we'll give you a book that will help you understand what you will face now as a new believer in Jesus Christ. So God bless you.